Chapter 10 of Uganda's White Man of Work A Story of Alexander M. McKay This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Uganda's White Man of Work A Story of Alexander M. McKay by Sophia Lyon Foz Chapter 10 Three Boy Heroes and One Boy Tyrant Busy writing home letters one night in October 1884, Mr. O'Flaherty for hours had been the only one astir in the missionary's home. From his upstairs window in the midnight stillness, he heard someone below softly calling his name, Buona Filippo, Buona Filippo. Slipping down the stairs, he found a native Christian with a friend, who under cover of night had run to break the news which the missionaries had long dreaded to hear. King Mutesa is dead, they said. Fortify yourselves. The mission house will probably be plundered, and who knows how many may be murdered. Mr. O'Flaherty returned to the house and woke Mr. Ash, who shortly before had arrived as a new missionary in Uganda. Mr. Mackay was down at the port on the lake, twelve miles away, overhauling the new mission boat. As the two men talked and prayed together, seeking to know the wisest step to take, now and again the quick beat of drums was heard, while every gust of wind sweeping across the valleys bore the weird cries of the palace mourners. Judging from the amount of wailing at court, one might suppose the late monarch had been greatly beloved by his subjects, but a glance behind the scenes before his death might have led to a different opinion. The direct cause of Mutesa's death will never be known. Some say that the Arab's medicine had proved to be a poison instead of a cure, while others reported that the king had been smothered to death by some of his own wives. If either of these reports be true, we may be sure that those who took his life were among the loudest mourners. It was an anxious night for all who had heard the news. For generations the death of a monarch in Uganda had been the signal for robbery and bloodshed. People, sometimes to the number of two thousand, had been captured in the highways and offered as sacrifices at the grave of the dead ruler. Until the chiefs met, and chose a new king from among the sons of the late monarch, no one was sure of his life. Upon the crowning of the fortunate prince, all his brothers, who had been held as prisoners, would be slain except the eldest, who, according to Uganda custom, never sat on the throne. The old chiefs who had elected the new king were then usually deposed, and some of them beheaded, while the young ruler chose new chiefs and new court officers. Until the young king was well established on his throne, Uganda usually was a land full of murder and thievery. So on the death of King Mutesa, the missionaries feared the usual cruelties. Although Mutesa had not been to them always a faithful friend, yet they realized that it was his protection which had kept the jealous chiefs and Arabs from driving them from the land long ago. What was there now to keep a bloodthirsty mob from attacking them, from burning their houses, from plundering their gardens, and from sending them out of the country, or perhaps torturing them to death? And would their faithful Christians have to suffer with them? With these thoughts of possible danger, the missionaries prayed to the Father, and trusting in his protection, they waited for the morning. Early the next day, two messengers arrived from Mr. Mackay, who, when they left the lake, had not yet heard the news. The men, having been robbed of their clothing on the way and compelled to flee for their lives, were in a sorry plight on reaching the missionary's home. In the meantime, Mackay worked hard all day at the boat. At sundown, when he was about to have his supper of plantains, he saw the people of the place coming toward him armed with shields and spears. 
On hearing the all-important news, he immediately launched the mission boat so that the entire party might quickly escape if the mission house was burned, as those who reported the king's death assured him it would be. But thanks to the Katikiro, who became the ruler until the new king was chosen, the slaughters and thefts which all expected were checked. Probably some lives were taken, but these were comparatively so few that the missionaries knew nothing of them until later. In the council of the great chiefs, the question was debated whether or not both the missionaries and the Arabs should be attacked. In this council, some were eager to rush at once to the plunder, but it was the word of the Katikiro which held them in check, and which saved the lives and property of the foreigners from the hands of their enemies. But who was to be the new king? The people waited breathlessly for the decision of the council of the great chiefs. When the announcement was made, a great cheering arose from the palace, and some Christian boy escaped from the crowd unnoticed and ran to tell the news to his white friends. Mwanga alide Buganda. Mwanga has eaten Uganda, he said. To the missionaries, this seemed good news. Mwanga was a lad about eighteen years of age, who looked more like his father than any of his brothers. During Mutesa's reign, he had occasionally visited the missionaries and had learned a little of reading. If you should become king on your father's death, how will you treat us? Mr. Ash had once asked him when the boy was paying a visit to the missionaries. I shall like you very much and show you every favor, was the reply. However, it spoiled Mwanga to be made king of Uganda. During Mutesa's lifetime, his sons had no power, living lives but little better than those of the ordinary blacks. Now, while still only a boy, Mwanga was made the great king of Uganda, and he knew no one in all the world so powerful as himself. So sudden a change was enough to turn the head of a stronger man than Mwanga. He began to show all his father's weaknesses without any of his strong points. Instead of being the real ruler of Uganda, he soon became the slave of his katikiro. Mwanga seemed always afraid to do what he knew was right, and, when urged by his katikiro and chiefs to do wrong, he always proved too weak to say no. The Katikiro, the same man that held the position in Mutesa's reign, along with certain of the chiefs, hated the missionaries exceedingly, and it did not take long for Mwanga to catch their spirit and to be ready to follow their leading. First, Mwanga, wanting to impress the missionaries by his new power, haughtily refused to see them when they first called to pay him their respects. Somewhat disheartened by this first reception, the missionaries did not venture again to the court until some days later, and for this neglect they were chided by Mwanga. The second day after Mutesa's death was announced, the white man of work was called from repairing his boat by the chiefs who found they could not build the dead king's coffin without the help of the white men. As soon as this work was completed, Mackay returned to the lake shore. While he was absent from the capital, his enemies busied themselves circulating slanderous reports about him. They said that having slept in the boat at night, he came ashore in the morning and stole the people's plantains and goats. The fact of the matter was that the boat was beached at the time, receiving a coat of paint, and Mackay was ill with fever in his tent. Mwanga had not long been king when the rumor was brought to his court that an army of white men was marching to Uganda by way of the land of Usoga. Usoga was a country just east of Uganda, the only neighbor of which the king was really afraid. For generations the prophecy had been handed down among the Waganda that some day Uganda would be eaten up, conquered, by enemies entering the country from the eastern side through Usoga, the back door. Now there were many reasons to make Mwanga begin to think that the foreigners who were coming were enemies. 
he had heard of fighting on the part of the English in Egypt to the north. News reached him that the Germans, to him the same as the English, were fighting for land in the region of Zanzibar. After gaining their prize there, he expected them to march inland, conquering as they came. In addition, he had been told of English and Germans who were living at the southern end of Victoria Lake. Now, worst of all, there was an army of white men in Nusoga. Surely the Englishmen already in Uganda were part of this great force, and after having gathered a large number of followers in his kingdom, they would unite with the army in Nusoga and eat up the land. A spark was all that was needed to fire these suspicions. This spark was supplied by Mujazi, the captain of the king's bodyguard, who had long been a bitter enemy of the missionaries. One day Mujazi noticed a lad, formerly a follower of his, repairing the missionary's fence. He complained to the Katikiro that the white men were ruining the country, that they paid men to work for them, so that the chiefs like himself could no longer get workers for nothing. A few days later, several Christian lads, the servants of a certain chief, attended the communion service on Sabbath at the mission instead of thatching a roof for the chief. Because of this, complaints were made. Mwanga's mother, hearing of what had happened, exaggerated the report by saying to the Katikiro that no chiefs could get work done, because the missionaries were inducing hosts of people to serve them with the purpose of raising an army of rebellion. Mujasi also added the charge that every time Mackay crossed the lake, he took hundreds of Waganda with him. All these complaints, together with the story of the white men in Usoga, prepared the way for the first terrible crisis, which broke out a few days later. Mr. Mackay, having finished repairing the boat, gained permission from the king and the Katikiro to go to Msulala at the southern end of the lake, in order to take letters for home friends to a place where they would be carried on to the coast. About ten o'clock the next morning, the party started on the twelve-mile walk to the port. The crew, carrying the baggage and boat's gear, five or six of the schoolboys, together with Mr. Mackay and Mr. Ash, made up the company. The boys and the crew with the loads went ahead, the two missionaries bringing up the rear. While on their way, a rumor reached them that Mujasi was out with a large army. As they walked along, every now and then they met companies of men, armed with spears, hurrying past them. Recognizing one of the men, Mr. Mackay asked him where the soldiers were going. He looked a little confused, but replied that they had been ordered by Mujasi to capture some of the king's women, who had run away. The company walked on until they were within a couple miles of the lake. They were just entering a bit of scrubbly forest, when a force of several hundred men, headed by Mujasi himself, sprang upon them. Armed with guns, spears, and shields, they shouted, Go back! Go back! We are the king's friends! We have received the king's leave! How do you dare to insult the king's guest? the missionaries asked as they tried to proceed. At this the crowd rushed upon them, snatching from them their walking-sticks, their only weapons, and jostling them about in every direction. Mackay and Ash did not attempt to fight, but calmly sat down by the side of the path. "'Where are you going?' demanded Mujasi. "'We are going to the port, having been given the permission of the king and Katikiro.' "'You lie,' he replied. "'Where is the Waganda messenger to go with you?' "'We have none,' was the answer." Again the crowd of warriors rushed upon them, pulled them to their feet, and pointed the muzzles of their guns right at the white men's breasts. The captives, however, said nothing, but quietly abandoning the trip to the lake, they reversed their steps, thinking this was merely a mad freak of Mujasi's, and never suspecting that he was acting under the king's orders. 
The mob continued to yell at them, to mock and to abuse them with the most offensive language, until they tired of hearing their own voices, seeing that the missionaries walked quietly on. When they finally came to the point where two roads met, one leading directly to Mengo, Mwanga's new capital, the other to the missionaries' home, they halted until the crew and the five Christian boys overtook them. The crew, after being robbed of their guns, were freed, while the five Christian boys were marched along with their hands bound. The missionaries were then told to go back to their own home, and the Waganda boys under guard were marched off to the capital. It was now three o'clock in the afternoon, and the missionaries had been walking for five hours. Wearied and disappointed, they sat down to consider what should be done next. Mr. Ashe tells the story of what then happened. We decided to lose no time but to lay the whole matter at once before the Katikiro. When we reached his enclosure we were bidden to wait. No one dared to announce our presence to the Katikiro, as Mujasi was having a private interview with him, reporting his success in the late encounter. After waiting some time we got up and went to the doorway, and Mackay called out loudly, Katikiro, my friend, I am your friend, we are the white men. After calling once or twice we were admitted and invited inside the house. Mackay stated our case and asked why we had been so badly treated. To the surprise of the missionaries, the Katikiro merely smiled and said that Mujasi had turned them back because he had found them taking Waganda out of the country. Mackay assured him that nothing of the kind had been done. Oh, yes, Mujasi has caught five, insisted the Katikiro. Just then another case came on for hearing and the subject was dropped. As soon as possible, Mackay insisted on their returning to the case about which they were most concerned, and told the Katikiro that it was not right for them to treat their guests as they had done. "'You are always taking away our people, and returning with hosts of white men, and hiding them in Usoga with the intention of eating up our country,' he cried. Suddenly, with flashing eyes, he turned to Mujasi and said, "'Tomorrow morning take your army and tie up Filippo and this other man, Mackay, and drive them back to the country from which they came.' Mr. Ashe says, Mackay and I were utterly taken aback and astounded at this decision, and we begged the Katikiro to hear us, and tried to take his hand to plead once more. But he waved us scornfully aside, and with a cry of triumph from Mujasi's soldiers, we were hustled and dragged from the great man's presence, a dangerous and angry mob momentarily growing thicker about us. Soon they were actually quarreling for our clothes. Mine shall be his coat, shrieked one, mine his trousers no mine, and there was a scuffle to get nearer the clothing they coveted. However, the Katikiro did not wish matters to go quite so far, and sent his head executioners to warn off the vulture soldiers. The order was instantly obeyed, and dazed and amazed we found ourselves alone. It was now near sunset, and we made our way back home in a very unhappy frame of mind. In the quiet of their home the missionaries knelt together and poured out their hearts in prayer to the Heavenly Father, trusting in his protection and asking for his guidance. It grieved them to think that the work of the mission might be suddenly ended, yet it looked as though the Katikiro and Mujasi meant to kill everyone they might find who had come to the missionaries to learn. Fortunately, some cloth was still left in the house. This they finally decided to turn into presents. Six loads were sent to the king, six to the Katikiro, and one to Mujasi, with the hope and prayer that their anger might be calmed. The Katikiro graciously accepted his gift, sending back word that again they would be brothers. 
Since the palace gates were closed for the night, the king's gift was returned with the message that the king would receive it in the morning. Mujasi, too, accepted his load, but sent word that he was collecting a force to rob them in the morning and burn their house. But seeing they had sent presents to the king and Katikiro also, he would await further orders. The missionaries urged all their Waganda servants and pupils who stayed on their premises to flee for their lives. One boy, however, Seruwanga by name, would not go. Mr. Ash, finding him, asked him what madness it was which made him linger when in such danger. "'I am going, my friend,' he answered. But alas, it was too late. That evening he, too, was captured. During the night, under cover of the darkness, two Christian young men ventured to come to the missionary's home to tell them of their sympathy and loyalty. The next day, Mujasi came and searched the house for Baganda Christians, but none were found. For some reason, all but three of the boys captured the day before were released. But in the afternoon, the report reached the missionaries that Mujasi was going to burn to death the three who were still bound. None can express the grief the missionaries felt. They loved the boys as they would have loved their own children. One of them, Sarawanga, was going to die because he had lingered too long in the mission premises. The second, Kakumba, used to be the page of a powerful chief. On his master's death he had expressed the wish that he might come and be the missionary's servant instead of belonging to any other chief. So he had been allowed to live in the missionary's household. The third, Lugalama, the youngest of all, was a handsome young boy of twelve, who some years before had been carried away from his home as a captive in war. Having fallen into the hands of Sebuato, a Christian chief, he was finally given his freedom and sent to Mr. Ash to be cared for. The boy became a true friend of the missionary, and a general favorite about the mission grounds. These three boys, the oldest fifteen and the youngest twelve, were to be burned to death by the savage Mujasi merely for the crime of having lived with the white men. The missionaries did everything they could to save their boys, but all efforts were in vain. The sorrowful story was afterwards told to Mr. Ash by Kidza, a Christian who, as Mujasi's guide, had witnessed the cruel scene. This is the account as Mr. Ash gives it. Lugalama and Kakumba, when first arrested, were taken into a house, and Kakumba was beaten in accordance with a common Uganda custom in the treatment of prisoners. They had compassion on Lugalama and gave him some food. Next day they were taken to the king's enclosure and their sentence was pronounced, Mujasi being the chief accuser. Lugalama's former master tried to save him, but in vain. So the three boys, Sarawanga, Kakumba, and Lugalama, were led away to death, a mocking crowd following them. "'Oh, you know Isa Masia, Jesus Christ,' said Majasi. "'You know how to read. You believe you will rise from the dead? Well, I shall burn you and see if it be so.' These were some of the mocking taunts which they endured, and loud was the laughter which greeted such sallies. But the young Christians, as some reported, answered boldly and faithfully. Seruwanga was a daring fellow, and I can well believe that when Mujasi mocked, he would sing a song they often sang at the mission, Kila Siku Tuusifu, daily, daily sing the praises. Kakumba, too, had come to the missionaries when all others were afraid, and perhaps his voice joined in the song. But what could have been in poor little Lugalama's heart but the haunting, overmastering horror of death, and such a death? There were none who dared to beat upon their breasts and show the sorrow that they felt, though there were many sympathizing friends who followed, 
many compassionate hearts that God had touched with a pity which perhaps before they had never known. The mob, carrying gourds full of banana cider, found their way toward the borders of a dismal swamp. Here they halted. Part of the crowd brought firewood, others made a kind of rough framework under which the fuel was heaped. Then the prisoners were seized, and a scene of sickening cruelty was enacted. Some laid hold of Sarawanga, others of Kakumba, and others of Lugalama, brandishing their long curved knives. Sarawanga committed his cause to him who judgeth righteously, and the cruel knife could not wring from him a cry. Bleeding, he was cast into the fire. Kakumba appealed to Mujasi. Mujasi believed in Allah, God, the All-Merciful. He pleaded a relationship with him. But alas, there is as much mercy in the knife in the executioner's hand as in Mujasi's heart, and he too underwent the short agony and the flame. And now, the saddest scene of all, Mujasi bade them treat Lugalama as they treated the others. They came nearer, and he cried out, Oh, do not cut off my arms. I will not struggle. I will not fight. Only throw me into the fire. Surely this was one of the saddest prayers ever prayed on this sad earth. Only throw me into the fire. The butchers did their work and marred what was so wonderfully made, and the poor bleeding boy was placed on the framework that the slow fire might finish what the cruel knife had begun. A wail of anguish went up, becoming fainter and fainter, a last sob and then silence. Kidza stood sadly watching the sorrowful scene, wondering perhaps whether his turn might be next, when Mujasi, drunken with blood, came to him. Ah, you are here. I will burn you too and your household. I know you were a follower of Isa, Jesus. Yes, I am, said Kidza, and I am not ashamed of it. Mujasi then left him. What shall I say of that day of waiting, hoping, praying, fearing, praying not vainly, though at the very time the awful deed was being done? Such prayers are not vain as they may seem, but the answer to them is yet to come. That was a day when the wrongs of Africa came home to me and burned themselves deep into my very soul, that day when Lugalama fell asleep. January 31st, 1885 End of chapter 10